Praise the Lord. Hey, welcome today. Grab your Bibles. Join me in Ephesians. We're continuing in our series called A New People. Looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we're going to go to chapter 2 today. Going to pick it up in verse 11. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. You know, one of the darkest blights on society and throughout all history is the sin of racism, of prejudice. Now, that word racist is a very charged term that's been thrown around, well, quite a bit in the last number of years, sometimes justifiably, sometimes perhaps not. But there was a man that I read about that used that term to refer to himself in his former life. It was a guy named John. John was an Englishman. He lived in the 1700s. Very difficult childhood. His mother died when he was but seven years old. His father was a sailor by trade. He yanked John out of school, took him to sea. John literally grew up aboard a sailing vessel doing hard labor, surrounded by loud, uncouth sailors who were men of of dark prejudices that were racist, and John adopted their views as his own. He became a very wayward and bitter young man. He joined the British Navy only to desert. He was arrested. He was flogged for desertion, but he'd become so manipulative that he convinced his superiors to discharge him to a slave trading vessel where he manifested his racist tendencies, and he embarked on a life where he engaged in the slave trade off the coast of West Africa. Eventually, John became a commander of one of these slave trading boats, and he was by all accounts a a brooding and hostile and, and just a horrendous individual, even by his own account some years later as he would look back. And the story goes that a friend, an associate of John's, gave him a a book, Books were a a desirable commodity on sailing vessels. Men would go to sea for months at a time, anything to divert the mind. And so he began to read this book. This book was called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And John read in that book, he read the phrase as Kempis referred to the uncertain continuance of life. There was something about that phrase that struck a chord in John. Uh, uh, his memory was jogged of things that his mother used to say to him. She would teach him scripture passages, even as a very young child. And so a spark was created right then and there. And the story goes that as John was reading this book, Late one night on this sailing vessel, a sudden and violent storm arose that threatened to sink the ship. He cried out to his maker. He pleaded with God to save his life. And eventually the storm subsided. And John would look back at that moment as a catalyst that began a process. And over the next few years, he contemplated and he studied and he sought truth And he eventually turned his life over to Jesus Christ. He left behind that life of slave trading. He repented of it. He moved to London. He joined a church. He began attending. And there he began to to study and to train to become a minister, which he eventually did in that very church. And over the years, this now uh, humble and repentant man had a body of work, of writing, whereby he wrote countless stanzas of verse that became songs. Over 300 songs he wrote about the Lord. And many of them were adopted by the Christian church as hymns. And one of them became one of the most famous songs ever written. This song written by this man, John Newton. A song called Amazing Grace. And its lyrics now, in light of that story, seem rather autobiographical. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And he saw what he was blind to before. Not only his own sin, not only his own need, not only the solution in Jesus Christ, but he also saw as God sees because of the Holy Spirit that now lived in him. He saw people as God saw people. Not as lesser than him, but as created 
by a God who loves them. Now that's a beautiful story, but it doesn't end there because John would live to be a very, very old man and long past the age where most would retire, John worked feverishly. He wrote in great detail concerning the slave trade that he was once a part of. Why did he do this? To pass this information along to a friend of his, a man named William Wilberforce, who was a member of the British Parliament. William Wilberforce longed to see the, the abolition of slavery. And so John collaborated with him to build a case to outlaw slavery, and the work of these two men contributed to the Slave Trade Act of 1807 in England that passed outlawing slavery once and for all in Great Britain. And God used the amazing story of transformation of this once racist, this once wretch, now a new creation in Christ. The old had gone, the new had come, and this is God's paradigm to bring in a reality of faith whereby we are changed, whereby we who were once blind may now see as God sees. And in light of that truth, as that is God's design, surely no prejudice, no racism has ever been a part of God's church, right? Ha <laughs> ha. Sadly, that is not the case because what I want you to see in your notes today is that racial and cultural division has always been a problem in the church. We're going to look at a darkness. Even in the early church, in this book of Ephesians, Paul's going to speak of this, but he's going to accompany this reality, just bringing this up, discussing what is really happening in the church. He's going to also show us the reality of who we are in Christ so that we may walk in that identity. Would you, would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon our time together in your word. As we read this, God, I pray we would read it with open eyes. I pray that we would come with open ears, with open hearts. Would you show us, God, not who we are in our flesh, but who we are in our newness, in our spirit, how you would want us to behave toward one another in the church of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let us dive right on in. There's really no better way to do it. Look at verse 11 with me. Paul writes, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. I'm going to stop right there. You may be wondering, what, what is all this? The uncircumcision? The circumcision? Why are we talking about this? What is all this? Let me, let me just, in, a, in short order here, I want to just explain that the uncircumcision, that term, refers to the Gentiles. They are called the uncircumcision by another group, which is called the circumcision, and that, of course, is the Jews. And in this context, more specifically, we're talking about these two groups, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, all right? Now, circumcision is, of course, the physical symbol of God's covenant with Israel, with Abraham. Specifically, if you went back to Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham, makes a promise to him. He says, Abram, that was his name then, he says, I'm going to make you the father of a mighty nation. Your descendants are going to number like the stars, like the sand on the seashore. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And I'm going to give you nationhood. And, and you will have this land I'm going to give you. And through you, through your descendants, Abram, I will bring my seed, capital S, whom we call the Messiah. What's his name? Jesus Christ. And through that seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he said there will be a sign of this covenant and the physical sign of the covenant is circumcision. And so Abraham would be circumcised. His eventual son would be circumcised. Later under Moses and the law, it would be mandated that all descendants of Abraham would be circumcised as a sign of this covenant. And so that's, that's the sign of the covenant. It is circumcision. Now you may be thinking, why? Why? Why circumcision? Did you know circumcision is mentioned in the Bible over 100 times? That's just weird. 
Like, what, what, why? Why is circumcision, of all things, the sign of God's covenant with Israel? Couldn't he just tattoo him? Couldn't he just put like a little, couldn't that be the sign? You know, I heart Yahweh or whatever. <laughs> why circumcision? There's a few reasons that people have offered up as to why this is the sign of the covenant. Some people say, well, it had to be circumcision because Israel was surrounded in Canaan by pagan peoples. And those pagan peoples, they, they worshiped false gods, and those peoples were uncircumcised. And so this is a way to separate the descendants of Abraham from the pagan peoples around him. I understand that logic. I think that makes sense, except that not all the peoples that surrounded Israel were uncircumcised. Some of them were circumcised. So that's not it. I believe it's, one of, uh, it's a couple of other reasons. One is it goes to the heart of the covenant itself. What did God promise Abraham? He said, you're going to be a great nation. Your descendants are going to be countless. Okay, what needs to bring about great numbers of, of, of a populated nation? Reproduction. What does circumcision deal with? It deals with that member of the male anatomy that is required for passing along the seed. You say, I didn't think we were going to be talking about this on Sunday morning, Pastor Scott. <laughs> Folks, I don't pick the topic. I just open the Bible and we go, okay? So don't blame me. So that is one reason. Another reason is, who did God promise would come through the lineage of Abraham? The Messiah, we know his name, Jesus Christ. What would he come through that lineage to do? He's coming to shed his blood. Why? So that the power of the flesh, our sinfulness, would be removed through the shedding of his blood. What does circumcision involve? It involves the shedding of blood. It, it involves the removal of flesh. And so, yeah, weird as it is, there are some very visceral elements involved in this physical act that points ahead to the Jewish Messiah who would shed his blood for all of mankind. But the bottom line is, it is the sign of a covenant God made with Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. And, uh, and so people try to say that this is, you know, this is transformative, this is part of, of, of our relationship with God. Let me tell you something, nobody is required today to be circumcised, okay? I don't know if you're circumcised, I don't care, don't tell me. I don't want to know. But just understand, if you're not, you're not going to go to hell. It has nothing to do with your salvation, okay? That's weird, all right? It has nothing to do with that. Nor is... The new circumcision baptism, some have tried to say that. Well, you know, circumcision, uh, you know, baptism is the new circumcision. It's the new sign of the covenant. It has nothing to do with one another. Yeah, there's some similarities. We are to be baptized, but it is not the same thing, you understand. For one thing, we're not just baptizing infant boys, okay? So that's one big difference right there. But this was a sign for Israel, most of us are not Israelites. I'm going to guess that a lot of us in here are probably Gentiles today. And we, we have a covenant with Christ, but it has nothing to do with this covenant. And Paul's point is, let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room, folks. You guys are Gentiles. There are some Jewish believers who don't like you. And there is a division between you. They see you as inferior because you're not like them. You are of a different ethnicity. You're a people of a different covenant. They have a sense of superiority toward you. And this is a reality. And Paul says, let's talk about this. And this is something, incidentally, that was prevalent in the early church. In Acts 6, you've got some uh, Jewish believers that spoke Greek only. They didn't live in Israel. They didn't speak Hebrew. They were looked down on by the Jewish Christians that spoke Hebrew. And so when they would gather, there would be a distribution of food in the, in the body there, and the Hebrew-speaking uh, Jewish believers would ignore the Greek-speaking widows in the body. Why? Because they looked down on them because they didn't talk the same. I'm so glad that we moved here from California. You guys didn't look down on me because I didn't say y'all, all right? I'm working on it, okay? But that was prevalent. In Acts 11, you've got some Gentile Christians that are looked down on by Jewish Christians. They'd come up to Peter. They're like, we heard that you eat with uh, the uncircumcised. Any truth to that? They had a problem with it. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts about being at a, the church at Antioch. He's there with these Gentiles. They were all Gentiles. Peter, Barnabas, they show up. They fellowship with them. 
Peter's yucking it up with these Gentiles and then some Jewish believers from James's church in Jerusalem. They come in. All of a sudden, Peter vanishes from the Gentile table. He just disses them, comes and hangs out with the Hebrew guys. Paul's like, what's up with that? Calls him out in front of everybody. He's like, what are you doing, Peter? What is there? Is there a varsity and a JV in the body of Christ? Calls him right out. You got Acts 15, Paul's first missionary journey. He's in Galatia. You got these Judaizers. They come in, they go, hey, you know, you Gentiles, it's great. It's great that you love the, the Jewish Messiah. We all, we all support that. But you know, you really need to keep the law. You know, you need to be circumcised. You got to do the sacrifices. You got to obey all this stuff. Paul had to deal with that. In the church, in James 2, you got the brother of Christ, James. He, he offers what some have referred to as the parable of the nearsighted usher. He says, guy comes in, fancy clothes, gold ring, obviously rich. You're like, oh, here, please, sit, sit, sit. Yes, can I get you anything? You know, Guy with shabby clothes comes in, hey, uh, sit over there. And you just, you just treat them differently. James says, show no partiality. There's no place for partiality in the body of Christ. And the reason for that is because there is a theological starting point for why division doesn't belong in the church. And it's this, the theological starting point is because we are all sinners for whom Christ died. Amen. And so there's no distinction between us in terms of our need. He died to reconcile us to God and we must believe the Bible which says that God so loved the world who was in the world well all of us at one point we were all a part of the world he loved us all right that God gave his only son that whoever right anybody whoever believes in him should not perish now do we believe that Yes, academically, we all say we believe that. What about practically? We live that out in the church? Do we see the way God sees? No partiality? Because practically, there is a result that's supposed to come from living that out, the way that we treat one another. It provides a practical, uh, visual benefit to the world. Because the church of Jesus Christ is intended by God to be a glimpse into that which mankind has longed for since the dawn of creation. What is it that mankind has always wanted? A better world. A world of peace and harmony and love to all. And what does man call such a place? He calls it utopia. Utopia, right? That's what he calls it. He calls it utopia. And this is to be the weirdness of Christianity, is that we are to be a picture, even though we're not perfect, we're to be a glimpse of that paradigm of perfection, of love to all. But think about it. All men want this. They want peace on earth, right? It's in all the songs that are rattling around in our heads. What the world needs now, right? Some of you are humming along. I can hear you. Out there, remember the Beatles? All you need is love. Ba, ba, da, da, da. Yeah, see? I, w I had to sing along with you because you would have been embarrassed. But anyway, right? I think of your fellow man. Give him a helping hand. Come on. Put a little love in your heart. And what's the next line? And the world will be a better place. See, that's the goal. And the world will be a better place. How many of you, anybody from the 70s in here? Anybody? You remember a Coke commercial back in the 70s, all the hippies on the hillside? I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Keep it, because that's the key to utopia. We all just drink a Coke together, you know? Around here, maybe it's cheer wine. Ah, cheer wine. The nectar of North Carolina. You know, when we first moved to town, everybody gave us baskets of cheer wine. Was that you just trying to establish brotherhood with the Californians? Is that? My youngest son, Grayson, loves cheer wine. He's like, Dad, 
we got to get more of that cheer wine, man. You know? <laughs> Which is not good because my son Grayson is naturally caffeinated. He does not need, do not try to establish any more brotherhood with Grayson via cheer wine, okay? Incidentally, that, that, that commercial, you know, by the world of Coke and all that stuff, uh, it was a viral thing back in the day before there were viral things. Everybody knew it. The apartheid government, this is crazy, the apartheid government of South Africa reached out to Coca-Cola and requested that they remake that commercial with all white people. Like, I think you missed the point of the commercial, South Africa. And Coke said no to their credit. I'm going to buy a Coke now. Anyway, Paul's pointing all this out to these guys because we are to be a glimpse of this. Incidentally, the word utopia comes from the Greek, utopos. You know what it means? It means no place. Now think about that. A perfect world, and then the word for a perfect world means no place. In other words, that exists no place, except in heaven, amen? There is a place like that. It's just not on earth. But there is a place on earth that is to be a peak, a glimpse at that place that does exist. And the church, my friends, is to be that glimpse. So Paul's saying, all right, you guys are, are meant to be a glimpse of, of what is perfect to the world. But we gotta, we gotta recognize this reality. We gotta recognize this division that's going on. Let's talk about this. So you guys, you Gentiles, you are not of the covenant people. They look down on you. you. You are not the people of the circumcision, but he says this circumcision is made in the flesh by hands. It's a circumcision made in the flesh by hands. What does he mean when he says that? His point is that the act of circumcision does not save you. It does not make you righteous. You genetically being a Jew does not make you righteous. All that had to do with was God's covenant that the Messiah would come through that line. And there was promises that were made to them that God will keep. But the fact that you're not Jewish does not, does not keep you from being saved. You do have to trust in a Jewish Messiah. And as I've said before, Christianity is Judaism perfected because we are trusting in God's appointed Messiah. Most Jews do not believe in that Messiah. We do which makes us more accurate practitioners of that faith. But Paul goes on in verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were alienated. He's saying, as Gentiles, here are the things that alienated you from Christ, from the Messiah. Just speaking from the, from the very beginning. I'm gonna give these things to you because they apply to us too. In, our, in, in the beginning, we were, first of all, alienated in terms of our nationality. We're not, we're not Jewish. I mean, there may be some Jews in here, but, but we Gentiles are not Jewish. Therefore, we, have, we don't benefit genetically from that covenant. Paul goes out of his way to say, we don't, you guys don't trace your lineage back to Abraham and Sarah. Where do we trace it? We trace it back to the Tower of Babel, where the races emerged for the first time. God scattered us into different cultures, into different ethnicities. I'm, I'm German. I am not of the covenant, okay? There's no prophecy for the Germanic people. Uh, my grandfather is uh, English and Danish. There is no prophecy for the English or the Danes, okay? I've got some people in my family. Their last name is McCool. That's Irish, and apart from having a kick-butt accent, there's nothing special about them. There's no prophecy there. Uh, so whatever your lineage is, if it's not Jewish, there's a national distinction between you and Christ. Uh, he says, you were strangers to the covenant of promise. Okay, we were alienated in terms of our promise. There is no promise for anyone but Abraham's descendants in this context. They had perks, by virtue of who they were descended from. Land, national status, very specific promises of blessing, agricultural benefits, all of this promised to the Jews, not the Gentiles. There was a promise of a seed, Christ. He would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, but he would not come through the lineage of all the families of the earth. This is not a promise where the Messiah would come through Nicaragua. 
He would not come through Australia. He would not come through India or Sweden or Russia or any place like that. These are not promises given to Paraguay, okay, or Vietnam or Norway. This is for a special people designated by God. And Paul says that we were having no hope and without God in the world. And we're separated in your notes by hope. In terms of our hope, we didn't have the same thing to look forward to. There was nothing to anticipate if you were not of Israel. Okay, regardless of your color, your language, your background, if you were not a righteous Jew, you had no promise of hope. Uh, now, there were non-Jews that were brought into that promise by virtue of their embracing the faith of the Jews, looking ahead toward the Messiah, trusting in that. You had Rahab, you had Ruth. They were not Jews, they were Gentiles brought in. But in great numbers, the Gentiles were not coming to the Jewish Messiah. So we have an alien nation. But then Paul says in verse 13, two very welcome words, but now. Well, thank the Lord. I'm so glad we got a but now. Last week, Paul dumped all of the stuff on us about how we used to be in our lostness, okay? And then he said, but God. Hallelujah. We got a but now. I was blind, but now I see. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. All of us, regardless of your color, regardless of your ethnicity, your language, your background, culture, whatever. If you were once far off as I was, you have been brought like me near by the blood of Christ. Blood makes us family, right? When you say we're family, you're related by blood. It is the blood of Christ that flows through our veins. I don't care who you are. We are one by blood. We were orphans and by his death we have an inheritance. Uh, by the father giving up his son, we are all made sons and daughters. That's good news. We've been reconciled upward. Now watch this, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. I want you to underline the word our. O-U-R. We've got a pronoun shift right here. These days everybody's talking about pronouns, you know. My pronouns are he and his and she and hers and all this stuff. These are the only pronouns I care about right now. Our and we. Paul was saying, you Gentiles, you uh, who are alienated, you were not of the circumcision. Now he's saying, he himself is our peace. He's our peace. We're together in this. Our peace, Jew, Gentile, into one. There is a unifying between all who are in Christ, regardless of background, there's a common terminus for us. And in your notes, as a result of being reconciled vertically, we must be reconciled horizontally. You with me? He's reconciled us to him, and by virtue of that fact, we now have reconciliation to one another. The natural barriers that were there are gone. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 18, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. It's not about skin anymore. It's not about ethnicity. It should never have been, but it's definitely not now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know this verse. Hallelujah that this is true. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Don't miss that. He reconciled us to him. And as a result, we now have the ministry of reconciliation. We minister to one another in reconciliation. We can come together, right? Come together. Okay, oh, no, 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 that. <laughs> this overcomes, forget melanin count, all right? This isn't, even, this isn't even about ethnicity. This overcomes far more than that. This overcomes 
behavioral stuff. This overcomes reputational stuff. Whatever you were before, when I look at you now, I see a brother or a sister in Christ, period. I don't care what you used to be like. I don't care what you used to do. If Jesus has saved you, you are a new creation, and that's how I need to see you. I don't hold anything against you. You think Paul had a bad reputation? He was Saul of Tarsus before he was the Apostle Paul. He had Christians killed. He had Stephen Stone, the first martyr, because of this guy, Saul of Tarsus. God knocks Saul off his horse on the road to Damascus, about kills him, blinds him, says, I am he whom you have persecuted. You go into Damascus, you meet this guy, Ananias. Meanwhile, God speaks to Ananias. He tells Ananias, he says, hey, Ananias, I'm going to bring you a guy named Saul. Tell him about the gospel. Tell him what he needs to do to be saved. Baptize him. Can you imagine Ananias? He's like, Saul? Just to clarify, we talking about the same guy. Saul, the one that had Stephen stoned, he's killed a bunch of us. That, 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 that's Saul? That's right. That's right. That's Saul. He's going to be my guy. He's my emissary to the Gentiles, to the children of Israel. Lead him to me. What does Ananias do? He goes in, greets Saul. He says, brother Saul. Brother. Calls the brother. Message, if God takes you, I take you. We embrace who God embraces, and God will embrace any who come to him. Amen? And so he is our peace. Paul goes on, verse 14. He says, uh, he is the one who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We got a wall that needs to come down. We've got to break down barriers. Actually, they're broken. We just need to live like they're broken. There was a wall in the temple in Paul's day, a dividing wall. What do walls do? They keep people out. What was this wall meant to keep out? The Gentiles. The Jews put a wall on the Temple Mount that the Gentiles could not cross. Okay, uh, This is the temple that was rebuilt. The original temple built by Solomon, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Jews go into exile, 70 years. They come back. They're allowed to rebuild. They rebuild the temple. A guy named Zerubbabel builds it. And uh, eventually Israel becomes a vassal state. You got Greeks coming in. They're uh, conquering Israel, but they're allowing them to function in their own society. Later, it's going to be the Romans who do this. So this is a whole new set of problems for the Jews. And so they say, we got all these Gentiles around us telling us what to do. We got to put a wall in our temple so that the unclean Gentiles can't come in. And eventually the Romans are like, all right, well, we'll let you do that. You know, and we'll even let you have your own law about that wall. If anybody crosses, then you have the right to put them to death. And, and this wall did not exist in the tabernacle as they wandered in the wilderness. There was no wall like that. When Solomon built the temple, there was no wall. It was put in during a time of cultural tumult for the Jewish people. And the interesting thing is, Paul is writing this letter that we're reading from a jail cell in Rome. How'd he get there? Rome had to arrest him to protect him from the Jews in Jerusalem because he had been seen near the temple with an Ephesian, a Gentile Christian named Trophimus, probably went to this church that he's writing to here, and he was seen in the company of a known Gentile, and the Jews, what they knew about Paul and his reputation, that he loves these Gentiles, he's all for all people. If he hadn't brought that guy across that wall, he's going to. And so they wanted to kill him. So the, the Romans arrested Paul to protect him. They took him as far away as they could. They put him in Rome. And it's in this jail cell in Rome. He writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. Isn't that something? But I love that it was his reputation that they just knew. They didn't, they didn't have any proof. They just assumed that he, he loves these foreigners and he's going to bring them in. Do you have that kind of reputation? Would people want to assume that you're for all people? If you belong to Christ, they should. They should. And so Christ has broken down the wall. He did this from the cross. What did he say on the cross? To tell us die. It is finished. Right? Breathed his last, yielded up his spirit. What happens in the temple at that very moment? In the temple, there's a veil. 
that separates the Holy of Holies where God supposedly dwelled, separated it from the outer court. That veil was this long, tall, thick uh, veil that hung down. It ripped from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom up, from the top down. So we knew who did the ripping. It was God. And what does that communicate when previously only a Jewish high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies? That veil rips. And the message is, you don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be a high priest. You just have to come on my terms. All have access to God through Jesus Christ. Amen? We've been granted access. And so Paul says that he broke down the wall, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This law from the Old Testament, it created a hostility between people. It was not intended to do that, but it did because it was manipulated and misconstrued over the years. You recall that I told you that Paul rebuked Peter when he abandoned the Gentiles, he's meeting, he's meeting only exclusively with the Jews. And he calls them out, rebukes them. Not long after that, God gives a vision to Peter, speaks to him supernaturally, shows him all these unclean things. He says, Peter, these are not unclean. And, and then Peter meets a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, a Gentile. God had spoken to Cornelius. And this encounter is transformative for Peter. And he's recorded in Acts 10. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Prejudice has no place in the life of the believer. 500 years of errant tradition done away with, with one encounter right there. So Paul says... Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed through ordinance that he might create in himself one new man. I want you to underline that phrase, one new man. This phrase is what we call a hapax legomena. It means it only appears once in your whole Bible. You don't see this phrase anywhere else. One new man in place of the two. The two what? Jew and Gentile. You got one. Where there was once two, there is now one. So making peace. And so this is the vision. We are one. When the, when the world looks at the church, the, God's intent is that they see unity. What did Jesus say to his disciples? By this all will know that you are my disciples in that you have love for one another. Well, that, that probably seemed easier when they were all Jewish. But now there's all these, it's, a mel, it's, it's not really a melting pot. It's a mosaic. Because we're all different, but we come together and we're clearly one. There are visual differences. We're not all the same, are we? We're not all the same. We have different ways of, of, of dressing. Uh, we like different styles of music. We might think differently about things. We've got different personalities. We talk differently, all this stuff. But we come together. What do we have in common? Jesus. Jesus and so there's, there's love and there's unity in Christ and the world needs to look at that and see something that they've never been able to accomplish in human history. And it's happening at this place called the local church. And in verse 16, he's making peace, Paul says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What hostility? The hostility created by the law through its ordinances. So as we kind of wind this down, I'm gonna give you seven aspects of our horizontal relationship. We've been reconciled vertically, but we've got to live out a horizontal reconciliation. And the first thing, the first aspect of that in your notes is we are one body. We are one body. Through what? Through the cross, verse 16 says. The cross dealt with our sin, our sin condition, we think of our sin being against God. Well, it also dealt with our sinfulness toward one another. Okay, why do you think that the, the, the stories in the Gospels have such power with, with Jesus meeting at the woman at the well? What, what kind of woman was she? She was a Samaritan woman. She was considered a half-breed by the Jews. Why does the, the parable of the good Samaritan 
have such power because it took an idea that seemed abhorrent to the Jews that this guy who does not worship the way we worship that he could possibly be used of God? It's, it's transformative to think of that. And so we are one body. It is revolutionary to consider that through the cross, God didn't just reconcile us to him. That's the most important thing. But the byproduct of that is reconciliation toward one another, that we our enmity would be taken. It would be eradicated, and we would be one true unity. Verse 17 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You who were far off and you who were near. In your notes, number two, we're one people. We're one people. Uh, This is a quote from the Old Testament from Isaiah 57. In Isaiah, God is talking about what he's gonna do to bring the people of Israel back out of captivity. And it says there, I will bring peace to the far and the near. You've got Jews that are still in the land. You've got Jews that are in Babylon. I'm gonna bring them back and you're gonna be one again. You're gonna be one. It's, it's gonna be like it was never, there was never a separation there at all. And Paul takes that idea from Isaiah and he doesn't misinterpret it, he just gives it a twist. And he says, there's a people that's far off, but they're in Christ, and there's a people that's near, and they've always been the people of God, the Jewish people, I'm gonna bring them together. I'm gonna to create one people. And then in verse 18, He says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Number three in your notes, we got one Father. We got one Father. We both, what is both? Jew and Gentile. We are one in our access to the Father. Only the Jews thought of God as their Father. Well, now we share a Father. All right? What is it that gives us access to the Father in unity? He says one spirit, right? We have the same spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you from Paul's word in uh, Romans 8, 15. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, and here's my favorite part of the verse, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, now I want to show you something. That word Abba, what kind of word is that? What language is that? That's Hebrew. That's what the Jews spoke. What, what does it mean? What does Abba mean? It means daddy. Abba is what a little Jewish boy would call his daddy. Now, what's the next word? After Abba, father. Now that's English. But Paul didn't write this in English. He wrote it in Greek. So you got a Hebrew word followed by a Greek word. Greek is the language of the Gentile. And the word there is pater, pater. That's what a little Greek boy, a little Gentile boy would call his daddy. And so you got two words that speak of familiarity to a father. They both mean the same thing. They're from two different languages, two different cultures, two different peoples, but there's unity because they cry out to the same exact person. Abba, pater, he is our father. No matter where you come from, no matter what you look like, you're in Christ, you and I share a father, amen? Amen. And now we look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Number four, we got one, one citizenship. We have one citizenship. A shared citizenship. Just like the saints, it's, it's, it's one citizenship with the saints. Who are the saints that Paul is referring to? He's talking about the major figures of the early church. The saints of Christianity. You've got the 12 disciples in there. Uh, You probably are including Mary Magdalene among the saints. You've got Paul himself included among the saints. Uh, What's he saying? He's saying, look at all of the heavy hitters of the church. What do they all have in common? They're all Jewish. They're Christian, but they're Jewish. He's saying, you guys have the same exact citizenship as the saints, which means you're a saint. Did you know you're a saint, Christian? You're a saint. You're like, I'm not even Catholic. It's got nothing to do with it. The Vatican doesn't get a vote on this. You you don't have to perform any miracles. You don't have to be dead for 100 years. The moment you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. 
and you have the same citizenship as I do, as Paul did, as Peter did, as Matthew did, as Thomas did. And not only that, Paul says, and you're members of the household of God. You're part of his household, which means number five, we are one family. We're in his household. That means we're in his family. I've got a great big extended family. A lot of them are back in Missouri. Um, my parents live out that way. It's been years since I've gone to be there over Christmas because of church responsibilities and things like that. But what they do at Christmas time is the whole family comes together. They all get together. Because my mom is one of five kids. Uh, all five of them have kids. Those kids have kids. And some of those kids have kids. And so they all come. They're, we're all descended from Troy and Zelda Henson. That's my mamaw's name, Zelda, for you gamers out there. And my papa is what I call him. Troy Douglas Henson was one of 10 children, and a lot of them are still alive. And they've got kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and some great-great-grandkids. And so we've got cousins out the wazoo and crazy aunts and uncles, and they all come together at Christmas time. And it's just a mob of people. And there's too many people to gather in one house, so sometimes they go down to the community center, and they have their little family Christmas down there, and it gets wild. And they, they do a you know white elephant, or some call it dirty Santa, gift exchange. Anybody do that in here? Okay, that's where you get your Joe Biden Chia Pet and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> And in my family, you got people that, that, that go, oh, no, when they get something like that. And you got people going, oh, yeah. You know why? Because we're all different. There's a whole lot of different types of people in there. And guess what? My son goes to college just a couple of hours away. And so this past year, he got to go to that. And I said, brace yourself, kiddo, because... That, is, that family, there's a lot of different types of people in there. I mean, they're all different walks of life. They're big, they're skinny, they're tall, they're short, they're blue collar, white collar, redneck, city folk, doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat. I mean, it gets crazy. And you're gonna have cousins that you've never met and they're gonna come up and put you in a bear hug. And they did. And they loved on him like he was family because, of course, he is. And the body of Christ is all different sorts, all different kinds, we're all different colors, we're all different backgrounds, we're all different mindsets and personalities, but we are one in Christ. We are one family. And then verse 20, he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Number six, we're one temple. Now, this imagery of the temple, this was a big deal. This is for the Jewish reader. Because when they thought of the temple, this is that holy place. This is where God lives. And now you're telling me that, that we are that temple and not just we Jews, but Gentiles too? We are the place where God lives? Yes, and we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What did we get from the apostles and the prophets? We got the Bible. Old New Testament, that's the foundation, the revealed body of, of, uh, of uh, uh, revelation. And we walk on that, we stand on that, and our cornerstone is Christ. What is a cornerstone? First stone laid when they built the temple is the cornerstone. It is the largest, strongest, most perfectly cut stone, and everything is built off of that. Everything is laid in reference to that. Here's the cornerstone. It is perfect. The wall goes out this way at a perfect angle. This wall goes that way. Roof goes up. All comes off the cornerstone. You had to have a perfect stone and everything else is made perfect in relationship to that stone and our cornerstone is Christ. And then elsewhere, Peter says, you are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And the word for house there is the same word that they used to refer to the temple where God's presence dwelt. And Paul says in verse 22, in him, in this cornerstone, you also are being built together. We're in this together. And we are the house of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, the hagias numa within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You know what? There's no temple in Jerusalem. You go to the Temple Mount. I was telling my kids about this the other day. 
They said, Daddy, have you ever been to Israel? I said, yes. And so they, they know some Bible stories. They know stories about Jesus at the temple. And they asked me about the temple. I go, well, you know what? We didn't see the temple. And they go, why not? I said, it's not there. It's been destroyed. They're like, oh, no. I say, you know what's there now on the Temple Mount? They said, what? I said, a mosque. And Everly, my daughter, didn't know what that is. I said, they don't worship the same God as we do. And she goes, oh. Like it was just, it was shocking to her that, that a different God would be worshiped in the place where the true God was once worshiped. And I said, ah, but wait a minute. I said, there is a temple. She goes, there is? Where is it? I go, you're looking at it. Everybody who follows Jesus and has trusted in Jesus is the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit. He, he lives in us. And this is what Paul means when he says, you, you've been made into a dwelling place in verse 22. For God, by the Spirit. And this is number seven. We contain one presence. If you know Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have his spirit living in you. I've got his spirit living in me. You know what that means? We are one. Just like the Trinity had the same divine essence, you and I have a member of the Godhead indwelling us and it unifies us. What is the last prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested? He prays in John 17, 21, that they who all of us, followers of Christ, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And people look at it, they, that they may all be one and they say, see, we just need to get along. That's what he was praying for. Go along to get along. Unity for the sake of unity. no. He was praying that we would be one. How? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's unity. There is no unity apart from that. What the world needs now can never happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Only through Jesus will there be peace. Only through Jesus. The Prince of Peace. He's going to come back. He's going to make. He's going to make His kingdom on earth. How's he going to do it? He's going to use his people who are indwelled by his spirit. And that is what brings us together. Now, the practical living out of that is we got to die to the flesh and live according to that spirit so that we can have real peace with one another. And as we do this, what does he say? It's so that the world may believe that you have sent me, Jesus prayed. That is the reason we need to be unified in the spirit is that when the world looks at this thing called the church, they see something special happening here that man has never been able to duplicate. Man has never been able to create. And they want to know, what do you got that I ain't got? How can I have that? They will know you are my disciples in that you have love for one another, a supernatural love that can't be explained through human means. It's a spiritual thing and it binds us together and we need to live according to that identity together. Amen? Amen. Let's, make that, let's make that our focus as people that are set apart, that are one. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon everybody in this room called by the name of Christ. I pray that we would love one another with great abandon as you loved us. May we love each other and live out who you've called us to be on this earth that others may look, that they may marvel, that they may want what is in us, God, so that they can know true peace through Jesus Christ. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.